This week's Parsha is Parsha Spo. Good morning and looking forward to today's Torah discussion. The title for this week's class is Changing the Narrative. This month, the month of Shabbat, is dedicated by Frida Greenbaum in memory of our beloved parents, Frida's family, her beloved parents, Anna, Kenya, and Max, Matal Pinchas, Felowitz. And if I'm incorrect, feel free to correct me, Frida, on the pronunciation. Holocaust survivors who on a daily basis taught their family, many Jews, unconditional love, honor, humility, and respect for family, friends, and community. Their commitment to Jewish traditions, open hearts, and home demonstrated their devotion to the survivor community, Eretz Yisrael, and served as an inspiration to their children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, as we ourselves are experiencing through Frida, through their offspring, to the greater Jewish community as well. Definitely, we join Frida in wishing that the parents, her parents should have an aliyah, aliyahs of their neshamos, and that they should continue to benefit from all the good deeds of all their offspring. And again, as I mentioned, we, we're specifically privileged to have Frida on our team and helping all of us to uh, live up to some of those ideals that her parents truly represented. And along those lines, the title of today's class, which is Changing the Narrative, we know how important it is to think about what is the messaging in the world today regarding Jews, especially the post-Holocaust generations, as we are currently experiencing this uh, tremendous resurgence of hatred towards Jews, and the narrative is again shifting in terms of world opinion and Jews. So what can we do to change the narrative to the narrative that we want it to be? And really, this is one of the scariest results of October 7th. I guess we should now say October 7th, 2023, although most people know what we're talking about. One of the scariest aftermath results of October 7th is the seeming normalization of anti-Semitism yet again, and the rationalization of genocidal agendas. Just the fact that something like that can be spoken about as though it can exist, it's somehow sensible for those two realities is something that is incredibly scary and causes us to be filled with trepidation. So how does this happen that a previously unthinkable perversion somehow becomes the new normal? Now, this is not a new question. This is an old anthropological question regarding the behaviors of human beings and what does normal societal behavior become? How does it evolve? And it's an ever recurring one in our current modern times. Somehow, as a shameful example, somehow same-gender marriages are considered by many to be normal, even though there is no disputing that at best, this is an extremely difficult road to hoe if one is seeking to raise a family of well-adjusted children. That's at the very, very ultimate best of possibly positing such a reality as normal. And as we know, just the fact that both parents can't produce a child themselves leads to all kinds of issues, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yet, here we are with what was previously an unthinkable norm, 
now somehow people, many people take it as a given, it should exist, etc. How does this happen? So what I'd like to do is go to some of the mitzvahs and parashas bow, just looking at some of them, because it happens to be the parashas bow is filled actually with many mitzvahs, and think about why the Torah brings these mitzvahs in this parsha, not only if they're connected, so to speak, to the Pesach story, but is there somehow a very deeper underlying uh, message that is really at the heart of the parsha's bow parsha? So here are some of the mitzvahs. We have a tremendous emphasis in our parsha on recalling Egypt in many ways, specifically through the Pesach service offering, including that we need to teach our children, we need to respond to our children about the Pesach experience, and we have references from our parsha in the Haggadah that we need to say these words of the freeing of our nation from Egypt at the time of doing the Pesach service, which is why we do it on Pesach night, right? That's a, a very heavy topic of interest in our parsha. In addition to that, we of course have chametz prohibitions and the obligation of eating matzah on Pesach. We have the firstborn redemption of Jewish males and firstborn kosher animals, including donkeys, also need to be redeemed. And we have tefillin. So there's certainly a very interesting collection of mitzvot in our parsha. And yes, many of them relate to the exodus of Egypt, but it's also interesting that we have certain ones that come up later in the Torah that also pertain to uh, you know, the, the story of leaving Egypt, whether it's Sukkot and other ones. So it's interesting that, that these are the ones in our Parsha. So what I'd like to do is also just begin our Parsha discussion by reviewing some of the opening sentences of the Parsha, and then we will ask four questions. So the Torah tells us that Hashem told Moshe to go to Paro and to warn him of the upcoming plagues, Specifically, those upcoming plagues in our parsha are locusts, darkness, and the slaying of the firstborn Egyptians. And the Torah tells us that Hashem is doing these miracles and hardening the heart of Paro and his servants in order that Hashem should put these plagues in their midst and in order that we should tell over to our children and grandchildren the mockery that Hashem made of Egypt and the plagues that he did, and you will know that I am Hashem. Okay, that's the purpose of these plagues. So Moshe and Aaron come to Pharaoh, and they tell him, this is what Hashem said, the God of the Hebrews, how long are you going to refuse to become humbled in front of me, send out my nation, and they should serve me, because if you do refuse to send out my people, I will bring locusts to your borders. And the locusts will cover the entire face of the earth. They will eat all the remaining vegetation that the hail that was in last week's parasha at the end, that the hail did not destroy, the locust will consume all the remainder. And these locusts will fill your houses and the houses of all your servants, the houses of all Egypt. And it will be a type of locust that your fathers and your grandfathers never experienced before from the very beginning of existing on planet Earth. That's the message <clears throat> that Moshe and Aharon deliver to Paro. Now, at this point, the servants of Paro tell, uh, tell Paro, listen, how long are you going to let this be a source of problem 
for our nation not to send out these people. Let the men go and serve their God. Don't you know that Egypt is on the precipice of destruction? And then they bring back Moshe and Aharon. And power says, listen, go serve Hashem, like you said, but but who's going to go, actually? Like, let's get into the details. Who's going to go? Moshe says, our young people, our older people, our sons and our daughters, our cattle, we're going to go because uh, it's a holiday. It's a chag for our God, Hashem. And Pyro says, listen, you know, the truth is, Hashem should be with you, and I'm willing to send you. But if I send you and your children, it's not going to be good for you. Bad things are going to happen. And the rabbis talk about that Paro had an astrological um, vision that somehow this would be bad for them in the future. But therefore, he concludes, Paro concludes with, no, not everybody can go. Only the men, only the Givarim, only the men can go and serve Hashem, because that's really what you want anyways. And they are driven out from in front of Paro. Now, of course, the next thing that happens is that the plague of locusts come and descend upon Egypt. So... That's the opening of the parasha, and here are four questions. Why, in fact, did Hashem choose the plague of locusts to impress the Egyptians, given the fact that locusts are a naturally occurring plague phenomenon? Even today, locusts are known to exist, and they descend in various cities or countries from time to time, and they do definitely go after crops, much of the time. So if the point of the plagues is to impress Cairo and the Egyptian people, why don't you pick something else that was never done before? I don't know, for example, turning water into blood. Oh yeah, we did that one. The point is there could be many things like that that Hashem could choose to do brand new and then you don't have to say, and by the way, this plague is going to be different than the ones your parents know, know about. Right? You don't need to make that qualification if you just simply send the brand new plague. Why is the chosen plague one that is known to exist, but it's going to be done, so to speak, on steroids, right, to the nth degree? Why choose locusts at all? That's question number one. Question number two is why, in fact, do the Jews care? I'm sorry, do the Egyptians care if the children are also taken on uh, you know, this service uh, to Hashem. Like, well, why should the Egyptians care? So let them take their children. What's the big deal? You know, they, they leave the children. They don't take their children. You could make the argument that if they don't take their children, then they're definitely coming back. You could make that argument. I think that the, that's not so simple because it seems that there's at this time no question that the Jews are coming back. So I don't think that that is the main reason. Uh, if somebody wants to make that argument, you could. I'm going to suggest a different one. So why do the Egyptians care if the children are also taken? Question number three, why do the servants of power first speak of Egypt's imminent utter destruction, right? Their impending doom if power does not acquiesce to let the Jews go serve their God. But then when Pyro says, listen, you cannot take your children. So then the servants and everyone else who's worried about the future of Egypt stays quiet. If they're worried about their own mortality and the fact that they're about to literally be destroyed you should they should insist okay power let the children go also but instead at this point the servants say nothing why is that and then finally question number four is if the goal of the plagues is for everyone to know of the existence of hashem why doesn't hashem just cut to the chase 
for example, I am the Lord, your God, that created the world for the entire Egypt, the entire world, whatever. Everybody could hear Hashem speak, just like the Jews heard at Mount Sinai. Yes. The whole, the whole, what's that? <laughs> well, it, it, there is process, but it's, it's more than just process. In other words, we answered, why doesn't Hashem just take them out? Now I'm asking if, in fact, the message needs to be that it's clear to everyone that people should know that Hashem exists. So we have all these different miracles that say, hey, it has to be that there's a higher power. Hey, it has to be that there's a God in charge, especially if he's sending his prophets and the prophets seem to be able to predict what's going to happen. Let's just make it simple. Hashem could manifestly speak so that everybody hears the voice and words of Hashem. Why not do that? Is that not, in fact, what happens at Mount Sinai? That is what happens at Mount Sinai. Is not Mount Sinai the bedrock of our knowledge that God exists? Rambam writes, it's even more than miracles is Mount Sinai because miracles, people could still, you know, try to, you know, explain away, et cetera. But when it comes to actually experiencing and hearing God firsthand, that's undoubted. So why not just do that? Uh, the whole, again, the Torah tells us over here that I'm making these three last plays to, so that you should know how I made a mockery of Egypt and that you should all know that I am Hashem. That's the way Sephora now learns. You should know that I am Hashem. refers to the Egyptians, refers to the Jews. Okay, great. So let Hashem just speak and everybody will know. Why, why are we going about this entire process in a very seemingly indirect way when there's such a clear path that would be absolutely direct and obvious. So those are our four questions. Uh, just recap, why are the locusts chosen now to be a plague instead of choosing something brand new that's not already a well-known commonplace plague type of occurrence? Why do the Egyptians care if the children are also taken? Why do the servants of Paro not complain to Paro that, hey, let the children go also because don't you know that Egypt is gonna be destroyed if they're really worried about Egypt being destroyed. So they should let they should insist that Pyro let the children go as well. And if the goal of everything is to know that Hashem exists, let Hashem just manifestly speak so that, that the entire Egypt, etc., hears him. Okay, so I'd like to begin by just first reminding ourselves of something that we all know. And that is that Hashem determined in this world that we should have free choice. Now, of course, this is contrary to uh, many people's uh, thinking, uh, these people are called determinists, where they say human beings are essentially machines and that all of the choices are things that we cannot control, but that we are pre-programmed, whether it's through DNA or environmental factors, that things creep into our brains and determine how we should choose. Obviously, that's total bunk. We don't accept that in Judaism. It's also just ridiculous on the face of it for many reasons. But the goal of today is not to, um, you know, just quash that theory. The goal is to just point out that Hashem is definitely building a world where human beings choose. And so therefore, at the end of the day, God wants the existence of God to be a choice, meaning he, of course, exists. But God wants that people should know of the existence of God based on the fact that they choose to know that there is a God because they can also choose to deny just like they can choose to know. And so 
what's important to bear in mind now that we, you know, stated that concept that we all have already accepted that God wants us to choose and therefore choosing to know him is the way that Hashem wants to be known. There's a very fascinating thing about the reality in which we live. One of the most concretizing factors that determine the actual reality in which we live is that which we philosophically speak and repeat again and again until it becomes an unquestionable fact. Let's take a very simple mundane example. The old refrain that says, life is hard. A person who repeats often enough, life is hard, life is definitely hard for them. That just becomes their acceptance of reality and that they cannot change it. And so therefore life is hard. And the reason that it's hard is not only because there are challenges, but because they've made a philosophic determination in their mind that life is hard. And when they repeat it often enough, so then that becomes their, their, their given reality. And that concept that much of what we experience as reality is built on our repeating of our philosophical choices is a fact. So many things that we do in life is based on the fact that we've decided that this is how things are, this is how things need to be, and we've repeated it many times, and that becomes the reality in which we live. Uh, another very simple example is people who think that they're not smart. So they say often enough that they're not smart, and they really determine for themselves that they're not smart. They live in the reality as though they're not smart, even if other people, literally even sort of objective testing can be done to show that they are smart, it won't change this person's reality if they've decided and repeated again and again that they're not smart. So let's now piece it together. Since Hashem wants us to live in the reality of our choosing, Hashem determined that we determine our reality, right? So Hashem chose that we should live in the reality that we choose. That's similar to the whole concept of eating from the tree of knowledge, and that's why it's so devastating to actually choose evil, because then evil becomes part of what seems to be our reality. Now, since Hashem wants us to live in this reality of our choosing, Hashem determined to make the fact of His existence known to us based on our choosing to know him rather than imposing himself on us. Now, of course, God gave us ways to get to know him, numerous ways. For example, it started with creation, right? Hashem created the world, and that itself is mind-blowing. And for anybody with half a brain, you know that it makes no sense to say that it's anything other than intelligent design. Then beyond that, we have Hashem communicating directly with Adam, first man, with Cain, with Noah, with Avraham, with others, right? All of our forefathers and even other people. And then, of course, we have the miracles of Egypt, what we call the Ten Plagues. And last but not least, of course, is Mount Sinai. But all of those occurrences are ways that Hashem allowed us to know that he exists but because he doesn't impose himself upon us, that means we have the choice with all that knowledge to say, oh, that knowledge is true. 
or then to maybe rationalize it away and try to somehow say it's not true, like Mahavil and Terrible, those people who believe in the, you know, the, the determinist type theories. So having said all of that, what our Parsha is coming to emphasize is that the ultimate reality in which we live is the reality that we speak. If we speak of all the good that our parents did for us, that our friends have done for us, that Hashem has done for us, we will live in a reality of gratitude. If we don't speak those realities, even though they happened, we do not live in gratitude. It's amazing. We literally have to speak the things that we know to be true in order to make it consciously the reality in which we live. And so the entire Parshas bow is telling us that we come to know the existence of Hashem, not only because we experience the 10 plagues and the forefathers, etc. It's because we speak about the 10 plagues. It's because we speak about leaving from Egypt all the time. So here in Parshas Bo, we are both becoming empowered and entrusted to become a nation of speakers. That's what all Jewish people need to become. Speakers of the truth to themselves and to the world. Now, there's a very interesting teaching of the rabbis that says that the word Pesach is a contraction of two words called Pesach, mouth that speaks. A lot of this is in the teachings of Rav Nachman. And there are earlier sources as well. Um, I, I'm quoting some of them, uh, God willing, in the transcript. And what's really interesting, and it's something that Sfardim actually do when they do the benching, they speak about the fact that a table is a key place for speaking to have to happen. So one of the ways that we know this is because the rabbis teach us that whoever sits at a meal at a table and doesn't speak words of Torah is as if they are participating in idolatrous sacrifices. Because what happens is what we speak about at the table, that becomes the real reality in which we live. Nobody sits at a table in most cases without asking the other person, so what's new? How was your day? What's happening in your life? Right? The whole notion that a table is a place where people gather not only to eat, but to speak is an absolute cultural truth across the world. And it's, there's a sentence from Yecheskel, uh, which actually says, this is the, the table that's in front of Hashem. And this is, again, some of the, the, the teachings, there's a custom apparently on Shabbos HaGadol to turn over the tables because until we become free, our speech is not free, which is of course why real um, freedom has to mean freedom of speech because without freedom of speech, a person is not free because without freedom of speech, a person cannot create their own reality, which is the ultimate freedom. The ultimate freedom is to speak the reality that you want to live. And one of the kind of even more Kabbalistic messages about all of that is that the food that we eat 
looks like food and it looks like, you know, something that we have uh, self-reliance upon. We produce our food, we eat our food, we can be in charge of our own survival. But the real truth is that we only survive on that which is the word of Hashem, which is what the Torah says by the heavenly food, the man. We'll probably get into that in a couple of weeks. But for right now, the goal of understanding Parshas Bo is understanding that we are here in Parshas Bo becoming a nation of speakers. In order for it to be true that we live the reality that we speak, we have to teach our children to do the same. Because in order for what we think to be true, to be real for everyone, it has to be that we speak this way to our children. And the most impactful way for us to create cultural truths, cultural realities, right? So that we then live in a society created by our own ideas that are implemented into action is by teaching our children. And that is the ultimate key to how to change the narrative. One of the huge positives that we have in the world today is that we can see firsthand that there are tremendous breakdowns in society that don't allow for families to be created, right? We mentioned same gender marriage, there's other impediments in a liberal world and by a liberal world, I'm not saying there's anything wrong per se by being a liberal, but I'm talking about extreme liberalism, right? In other words, for many of the idea, ideas and ideals that are quote unquote liberal are not inherently bad. But what really happens is that things get taken to an extreme and we begin to promote things that are not really true. Among them is same gender marriage. It's not a good way to build a society, but there are other ones, right? Freedom of speech can be taken to mean to call for the genocide of people. Now, even though it's true that we need to be speaking in order to create reality, that should not be the reality that we're looking to create. And because of the fact, and this is what I mean by one of the positives, because of the fact that most cultures are not going to live if they can't pass on to their next generation, that's a tremendous benefit that those cultures that are building family have. They can actually create the new normal through the narratives that they teach to their children and that their children then learn to speak, which is why Chazal are so emphatic about teaching children Lashon HaKodesh from a very young age, teaching our children Torah Tzivolanu Moshe, from the messages of Pesach Seder, Vihigadeta Levincha. All of these things are ways for us to create the reality in which we need to live. And that reality is the reality that Hashem is real that Hashem exists. And fortunately and unfortunately, it's up to us to create that reality. Unfortunately, because it would somehow in our minds be easier if Hashem just did it for us. But fortunately, because that's actually not what's best for us. The reason that Hashem decided that choice has to be determined based on human beings, not on his own choosing for us, that's ultimately what's really good for us. So that's fortunate. So Hashem gives us the power to create our own reality through our choosing. But I'm saying most importantly, most concretely, 
through the words that we speak. And if we think about the mitzvahs of the parsha, which really begins with the opening sentences here, that Hashem is doing these three plagues in order that we should not only know that Hashem exists, but that we come to that knowledge by understanding what Hashem did in Egypt and that that motivates us to speak about it, that means that we have the internal messaging and drive to speak the truth of Hashem's existence, the way that he stepped in for us and the way that he made it unbelievably clear that there is a higher power that's in charge. But even there, he left it up to the Jewish people through Moshe and Aharon to present the message and that the Jewish people had to choose that they would only go serve Hashem if they bring their children with them. And make no mistake about it. The reason that Paro is against the children, the reason that even the slaves are against the children, is not uh, some hostage mechanism. It's because they know that if Judaism passes on to the next generation, that's more powerful than the Egyptian ideology will be able to withstand. Because the next generation of people are going to be speaking of the truth of Hashem's existence. And as we know, an idolatrous and colonialistic type thinking, what happens is you don't really build the next generation. The only thing you can really do is inspire more hatred and hope that your children will hate like the like uh, the people before them. But as far as a culture, idolatrous cultures doesn't build family, it doesn't build societies because it builds selfishness. And in order to build children, you need selflessness. And so therefore, both Pyro and the Egyptian servants, the slaves, are convinced that you cannot let these children go be part of this service to their God, because that, if they then come back to Egypt, Egypt will not be able to withstand as a society, as an ideology, if the next generations of Jews are going to speak of the reality of the existence of Hashem. And so, of course, now we understand that's why Hashem does not appear manifestly. Because if Hashem would say, hey, everybody, I exist. Okay, great. That, that's for today. That's not what Hashem wants. What Hashem wants is that people should come to the recognition based on the things that he has already done, because that's enough to know the truth. That's enough to know that it's obscene, absurd, beyond retarded to think that there's no such thing as free choice, to think that there is no intelligent design. That's something that we should already have accepted and known and now be speaking about. And that is the message of Parshas Bo. The things that are obvious and clear, we need to speak about it again and again and again, because that is the way to make it a cultural reality. So why are locusts chosen as a plague to impress everyone if, hey, that's a pre-existing type plague that exists? That's exactly the point. We need to learn that even in quote-unquote natural plagues, natural disasters, that Hashem is running that show too. And Hashem can make these locusts different. He can make them more intense or, you know, whatever was done. There's very interesting Midrashim that explained to us the uniqueness of this particular plague of the locusts. But the point is, we want to use something that you know about, that you think is just, oh, it's just a natural disaster, quote unquote, bad things happen. No. 
that doesn't, that's not the case. Things happen because Hashem determines for them to happen. And every now and then, Hashem will send you a message. Hey, look at that thing that you think is just like a naturally occurring phenomenon and look a little deeper and recognize, reminder, really Hashem is behind all of this. And the same thing is true of October 7th. Well, they've been waiting for years to do this. Well, they've been building tunnels for years. Yeah, they've taken all the money and, you know, amassing weapons, etc. Building factories of munitions. Yeah, but the reason that Hashem withheld his protection from us on that day, to the tune of 1,400 people and an ongoing national crisis and existential threat, is because we have not been properly living in the reality of Hashem's existence. We haven't been holding ourselves accountable to the things that we need to improve. We haven't been holding, even holding ourselves accountable to being vigilant, right? Everybody's big question about how could it happen? And what about the intelligence services, et cetera, et cetera, right? We have been asleep at the wheel, as uh, my friend Dr. Finkelstein likes to say. Asleep at the wheel is because we are not wanting to acknowledge reality in our minds, and we're certainly then not going to do it in our speaking. The way to become vigilant, the way to become knowers of Hashem is not to like meditate on it. It's to think about it and then speak about it. Of course, to act upon it as well. But that's why there are so many mitzvahs in the Torah that we have to speak in order to fulfill. The Shema, the Torah itself, by the way, um, the, the mitzvah of learning Torah is to speak Torah. In fact, if a person is only thinking Torah, they don't need to say Berchasa Torah before thinking Torah. They only need to say Berchasa Torah before speaking it or writing it might be a, a form of speaking it as well. Because what happens in your mind is not the reality. The reality is what you speak about. And that's what the Torah is emphasizing here in so many ways to speak about these things, to internalize the Egypt experience and then to speak about it. Asach the mouth that speaks. And if you look at the end of the parasha, the Torah tells us that the mitzvah of tefillin and the mitzvah of redeeming the firstborn, all of these mitzvahs lead to one inescapable conclusion. In order that the word of Hashem should be in your mouth. In order for the word of Hashem to be real, it needs to be in your mouth and you need to be speaking about it. And so therefore, Hashem sends a reminder to the Egyptians through these three plagues. But the ultimate message of all of this is that we need to speak the truth of Hashem's existence. The reason that Hashem appears manifestly at Mount Sinai at one time, yes, it's a great reminder of the truth that Hashem exists, which is something that we could know without that. But okay, now we experienced it firsthand. But the real reason is because he is intimately bonding himself with us. It's not just to prove to us because then he has to prove it to the rest of the world too, right? It is true that it proves it to us. And then we have the responsibility to the rest of the world to make sure that the rest of the world knows about it, right? That becomes the Jewish mission. And that's what I mean, that the Jewish people need to become a nation of speakers. Now, one of the signs of, my, my father always says that one of the signs of people who go through traumatic experiences, that they're able to, heal is the fact that they can speak about their experiences and somehow they can put it into a context and then deal with it internally and then they can move forward, which is a great explanation of why it's called Pesach, 
right? Part of freedom is to be able to speak about the horror of 100 plus years of slavery with incredible hardships and devastations. I'm suggesting that that's true, but that an even higher aspect of that speaking is not only that we can deal with our past, but is that we can express to ourselves the reality in which we want to live, that we have the freedom to choose to live in the reality, and that depends on the reality that we speak. So perhaps now that uh, in today's world, you know, we have so many platforms upon which people can speak, everybody can have their own podcast, everyone can have their own Zoom class, everyone can have their own way of communicating with people across the world. People that are the Jewish people really need to become nations of speakers. And I just wanted to conclude with an idea about the mitzvah, which is really almost a bizarre mitzvah in the Torah, the mitzvah of redeeming the firstborn donkeys. The Sephorno says an incredible idea about the firstborn donkeys. He says, <coughs> it's really odd, says the Sephorno, that we have a mitzvah of redeeming this non-kosher animal. Where's the holiness in a non-kosher animal and in, in the donkeys? So what he says is, that at the time of the exodus of Egypt, the Jewish people were required to take out the great wealth that Hashem had promised that we would leave with the great wealth. Even these beasts of burden should not have been capable of carrying what they were able to carry. So Hashem strengthened these donkeys at this time that they should be able to carry the load of all the possessions of the Jewish people. And because of that, says this forno, they, they, achieved some degree of sanctity and because of that the firstborn donkey has an obligation we have to redeem the firstborn donkey and he then says by contrast pyro uh, who's an egyptian who is compared to a donkey he didn't have the the ability to use his free choice to acknowledge the existence of god so what i am learning from this forna and it really is relevant to all of us is that these donkeys must have willingly tried to bear this load, even though it was really hard. Okay, so Hashem strengthened them. But the point is that as beasts of burden, they took the responsibility to carry whatever was put on them, and then Hashem gave them the additional strength that they needed, and that gives them a special holiness. We, as Jewish people, need to step in to our responsibility of being the nation that speaks the truth of Hashem, and even though we don't think of ourselves as speakers. We don't think of ourselves as having much to say. We don't think of ourselves as people with wisdom, maybe. We have to understand that is our burden as the Jewish people. We have to become the nation of speakers of the truth of Hashem. And we have to step into that role, whether it's educating our families, our friends, or even the greater uh, non-Jewish world. That is our job. And if we really want to change the narrative, that's the narrative. That's the, the narrative that Hashem entrusted us with to speak of his existence. If we do that, we will change the landscape of the ideology of the world that for so long has denied the existence of Hashem, whether it's in the realm of academia or in the realm of religious uh, you know, lunacies, uh, idolatry, etc. We have the job of speaking the truth. If we do that, then God will give us the strength that we need. And certainly if God uh, gave the donkeys the strength that they needed to carry that burden, Hashem will give us the need to carry our burden and fulfill the mission to bring the world to know of the existence of Hashem.
Let's do questions or comments, and hopefully the rest will be in the transcript. Thanks, Akiva. See you next week. Thank you, Rhoda. Looking forward to it. Question in the room. Um, I, mean, I, I know this is like a very The question in the room is that I'm saying Hashem doesn't impose himself upon us, but at Har Sinai, Hashem seemingly did impose himself, for example, holding the nation, the mountain over our heads or whatever that means exactly. Um, and, you know, I am the Lord your God is a pretty intimidating statement. But I believe the answer is that's because we chose it. Hashem said, if you listen to my, and you want to make a covenant with me, you'll be the chosen nation. And the Jewish people at that point said, yes, we want that. So that's why Hashem, quote unquote, did that manifest experience. We had already chosen, we had already chosen it. Yes. Uh, yes Rabbi, because otherwise there's no point. Hashem ultimately wants us to choose him. Yeah. Anybody else with a question or comment? Rabbi, I have a question. Yes. Rabari. Yes, uh, from Harrisburg. Oh, from Harrisburg. Rabari Huberman. Yeah. Cool. It's good, it's good to hear you. Um, Great I, to be with I, you. I came in just in time to hear a very, very important message. It's very, really resonating with me. So you're saying, so we as Jewish Jewish people should get out there and, and speak. Is, but isn't there a problem if, uh, mm -hmm. if let's say we're going out there, we're saying stuff we don't know, maybe it's not 100% true, it might like, you know, too much information. So that's also a problem, no? I, I'm not sure I understand. What's, what's too much information? So if we all go out there and have uh, podcasts and, and speak basically in the name of the Torah, you know, but maybe we're not holding there yet, so it's not necessarily 100% true. Maybe it's going to cause more problems. Okay, so um, your question is, like, if a person is not really ready to speak the truth of the Torah because they're not holding by that, that's your question. What should we do? What should that person do? Yeah. Okay, look, that's a fair question. <laughs> it's certainly a good question in general. And, uh, and that's um, very appropriate, um, especially seeing that your wife just did the 100th podcast on Jewish education, as I recall. Is that right, Ari? Yes. Okay, so Ari and his wife do have a very interesting uh, podcast. If anybody is interested, if you want to post it in the chat box over here, um, <laughs> please feel free to do so. Um, but the answer is, look, uh, if we don't have the self-insight, right, if we don't have the, the insight into ourselves to know that we're far from perfect and that as much as we preach, we have a million more, you know, miles to go as a person, um, you know, then we really can't be in a position of teaching. Now, it is true that we have a principle in general in the Talmud that says, adorn yourself and then adorn other people or fix yourself and then fix other people. So we definitely have to prepare. But on the other hand, we're never going to be finished preparing. So there is a, a balance that a person needs to strike when they feel like they do have what to give while they're still hopefully self-improving. Uh, exactly how to find that line, I don't know. But I think the main answer to your question is we have to be humble conveyors of truth, um, not presenting ourselves as the paragons of virtue that we are not. Okay, thank you. I hope it answers the question. Yes, it does. 
Awesome. Anyone else with a question or comment? Great to, great to have you on, Ari. Really. Like Follow-up in the room. You're talking a lot about like speech and you know conveying the truth of Hashem through speech. I just find it ironic that Moshe has a problem with speech. Ah, yeah, that's a very very good point. Um, that Rabbi Sambegelman is pointing out is that isn't it ironic that Moshe Rabbeinu himself had a great difficulty in speaking, and he is the ultimate conveyor of Torah, right? He is Rabban Shalom Israel Moshe Rabbeinu. That's why we call him that. And yet uh, he had a problem with speaking. So of Weinberg's at all, I heard him say that that was part of the point, that people should never think that it was because of Moshe Rabbeinu's charismatic speaking abilities that anybody was convinced about anything. It was only because it was the absolute truth, not because of his ability as a speaker. And also, it doesn't give us an excuse not to do it if we don't feel like a good speaker. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and as I'm pointing out, that also... If we're not good speakers, no excuse, unless you want to have a fight with Hashem at a burning bush. <laughs> okay, everyone, great to be with all of you. Um, please uh, zoom on over to my father. I, I believe that my father is, yes, speaking. So uh, please do so at 1030. Have a great week.